I want to focus your attention this morning on Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, I'm going to read verses 11 through 19. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. This is that well-known passage where Jesus cleanses the ten lepers. Beginning in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. When he saw saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let me pray for us one more time. God, we need your help if we're going to understand what you want us to learn this morning. And so it is our prayer that by your spirit, you would be the primary preacher this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and minds that understand and hearts that receive your truth that alone can set us free. And so with one voice, we pray, come thou fount of every blessing and tune our hearts and our minds to see and to savor your amazing grace. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this is part nine in a series that I entitled Irreligious. And throughout this series, we've seen that the distinguishing factor between religion and Christianity is grace. That's really the distinguishing factor between religion and Christianity, the beautiful, amazing notion of God's one-way love, His grace. Religion, as I've said week after week, is all about our work for God. Christianity, on the other hand, is all about God's work for us. So the focus of religion is on how I can make things right between God and me. The focus of Christianity, on the other hand, is on how God made things right between God and me. There's a huge difference between those two things. Religion is fundamentally about keeping a moral code. Christianity, on the other hand, is fundamentally about a gracious God who saves people that fail to keep the moral code. Okay? Two very different things there also. So I said last week that the message of Christianity, believe it or not, believe it or not, regardless of what you've heard, Believe it or not, the message of Christianity is not to copy every good move that Jesus made. Okay, what would Jesus do is not the primary message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not to copy every good move that Jesus made. Rather, it is Jesus dying for every bad move we make. Okay, so the simplest way for me to put this is that religion is about our goodness being rewarded. Christianity is about our badness being forgiven. Okay, that's really the the difference between those two things. 
And last week I said that religion may offend us. It, it can offend us because it tells us what to do. And we don't like being told what to do. I don't know about you. I don't like being told what to do. And religion gives us a list of rules and regulations and hoops to jump through. And because it gives us a list of rules and regulations and hoops to jump through, it can be offensive. I don't like being told what to do. Religion tells me what to do. Religion tells me what to do in order for my life to go right. Religion tells me what to do in order to be right with God. I don't like people telling me what to do, so religion can be offensive. It can be offensive to all of us. But grace offends us even more because it tells us that there's nothing we can do. And if there is one thing we hate more than being told what to do, it's being told that we can't do anything, that we can't earn anything. That's even more offensive. What are you telling me that I can't live a certain way and guarantee certain blessings from God because of my good performance and my behavior? Isn't God obligated to bless me and to love me and to take care of me if I cross my T's and dot my I's and do everything he tells me to do? Um, That's why we resist grace because it has nothing to do with us and our efforts and what we can earn with hard work and good behavior. Grace wrestles leverage out of our hands. That's why it can feel chaotic to us. So you know you're hearing about grace when what you're hearing causes you to say, wait a minute, that can't be right. That cannot be right. If there should be, I actually pray that there is something in all of us, me included, every Sunday that goes, wait a second, what did he, no, what? If, if, if what you're hearing doesn't cause you to say, wait a second, that sounds too good to be true, but what if, don't we have to, but don't I, if that's the little voice that goes on inside your head, it may mean you're actually hearing the gospel for the first time, okay? Because grace is that counterintuitive. It's that scandalous. It's that otherworldly. We live in a conditional world with conditional people, and we are conditional people ourselves. And grace is radically unconditional. And so it, it sort of upends the apple cart. It doesn't make sense to our conditional mindset. It seems too good to be true. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Um. Well, we see that here in this account, sort of the scandalous, upending nature of God's amazing grace. Jesus does more for these 10 lepers than you think, okay? So I just read the story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's met by 10 lepers on the outskirts of town. Uh, And from a distance, they cry out for mercy, And Jesus doesn't say, uh, what's your problem? What's going on? What what can I do for you? All he says is, go show yourselves to the priests. And so they didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to them, but they went to show themselves to the priests. And as they were walking, they discovered that they were cleansed from their leprosy. And nine continued on into town, and one came back and thanked him. And the one that came back was a Samaritan, which is why it's interesting in this passage. They point that out specifically. And then Jesus calls him a foreigner. A Samaritan was 
was a half-breed, and Samaritans were hated by Jews because they weren't pure Gentile and they weren't pure Jew. And so they were hated. They were the result of uh, mixed marriages, and so they were despised. Uh, they didn't really have a home. They were social outcasts in many ways. Um, and so the one that came back was a Samaritan. And Jesus said, where are the other nine? Is this the only one, this foreigner is the only one that is thankful? Um, well, we read that and we go, okay, so they were cleansed and, you know, good and well. And uh, only one came back. And this is really primarily a story about gratitude and the need to be thankful for what God does for us. But there's so much more going on here than meets the eye. Um, back then, people suffering from leprosy were treated as Outcasts. They had to leave their homes. They had to leave their families. They had to live together with other lepers on the outskirts of town. They would have to scavenge for food. They were forbidden to have any contact with people who did not have leprosy. And they had to ring a bell and shout, unclean, if anyone was close by, so that people wouldn't come in contact with them. Um, and so Jesus instructs them to show themselves to the priests because the priests were the ones who could give them a clean bill of health so that they could re-enter their community. That's why he says that. Well, they were now able, as a result, to return uh, to their lives, to see their families, to kiss their wives, to hug their children for the first time in possibly years. Some of them may have been suffering for years. They hadn't seen their wives. They hadn't seen their kids. They hadn't had work to do. They had to beg and scrounge for food. But now they could go back to work. They could stop scrounging for food. They could go back and see their families. They could go back to their homes. They could go back to their lives. So when Jesus healed them, he wasn't simply restoring their health. He was literally bringing them back from the dead. Literally. Now, the most surprising thing in this story is not that only one of these guys came back to thank Jesus. That's not super surprising. The most shocking thing is that Jesus would heal all 10 of them knowing that only one would come back and say thank you. That's the scandal of this story. That Jesus would heal all of them. There were no conditions. There, was no, there were no strings attached to his healing. It wasn't as if Jesus said, listen, I will heal you if you confess your sins and tell me all of your secrets. I will heal you if you do certain things. I will heal you if you can guarantee me that you'll come back and say thank you uh, when your life gets back in place and back in order. He heals all 10 of them knowing that only one would come back and say thank you, that only one of the ten would express any gratitude. Now, that grates against every impulse we have, every one. We live in a world where you only get dessert if you eat your spinach first, okay? I mean, that, that is, that's the world we live in. You want certain things, you have to earn it. You have to prove yourself worthy of it. You want love, make yourself lovable. You want acceptance, then be an acceptable kind of person. 
You want to get certain things, you must do certain things in order to get those certain things. We live very much in a conditional if-then world. We live in a world where you only get dessert if you eat your spinach. Well, here we see Jesus giving dessert without requiring that they first eat their spinach. Okay? And it's at this point that grace becomes confusing and infuriating to us. I mean, this, this is bad parenting advice, is it not? You know? This is bad marital advice, is it not? You really want your relationships to thrive? Well, you better attach some strings and put some conditions in place. That's how relationships thrive. That's how things get done. That's how people reach their potential, and so on and so forth. So Jesus healing all 10 unconditionally, knowing that only one would come back, is confusing and infuriating to us. Now, a few weeks ago, I said that God is so gracious that it will annoy us sometimes, okay? I mean, we want God to hold a grudge against the same people we do, but he won't. We want him to be kind only to those who we think deserve it. But he's not. In fact, the one thing that seems to annoy people the most about God is his willingness to love, forgive, and restore those whom we have decided deserve the exact opposite. Just so annoying, you know? Um, Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16, in Matthew 20, Jesus tells a mind-bending parable. A parable that if you read it rightly will make you mad, quite honestly. Um, It's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. The all-day workers versus the part-time workers, you know. Um, The all-day workers, you'll know that there was an owner of a piece of property and um, and he needed some workers, and so there were guys who showed up at 5 a.m. to go work the land all day long. And then there were guys who showed up at like 10 a.m. because they slept in, they had a little bit of a rough night, and they slept in, and then they went to work the land. Um, and then there were guys who showed up at 2 in the afternoon, their night was even rougher than the guys who showed up at 10, uh, and they went to work the land. And then there were guys who showed up an hour before the day was over, before the work day was over. These were the guys who were bona fidely hungover in a pretty radical and nasty way. And they show up and, you know, they're barely doing anything because they can barely see straight. They show up an hour before the workday is over. Well, the workday is over and it's time for everybody to get paid. And the guys who showed up an hour before the day was over got paid the same amount that the guys who showed up at 5 a.m. got. And the 5 a.m. guys are infuriated. Hold on a second. I mean, we were We're responsible. We went to bed early the night before, we set our alarm, we got up, we got up in plenty of time to read our Bibles and pray before the workday started, and then we showed up promptly on time, and we worked all day long, all day. These guys, these dregs of society showed up an hour before the day is over, the workday is over, and they get paid the same amount, okay, I mean, it's... It's a mind-bending parable that Jesus tells. And he tells this parable to the people who think that their hard work 
and faithfulness deserve a higher payment than those who slack off. Okay, that's the point of the parable. That he wants people who think that their hard work and faithfulness deserve a higher payment than those who slack off. He wants to confront them with the idea that they think that their hard work garners blessing. That they deserve it. That they've earned it. Well, in that parable, Jesus assaults whatever thoughts we may have which connect our work and God's grace. Assaults it. I mean, that's really, he's not talking about, he's, that parable is not, it's a parable. It's, it's sharing a, a truth about the way God relates to us, about our condition and the way God relates to us. He's not giving us a parable on uh, how employers should treat employees. Okay, that's not what that's about at all. So don't go, yeah, but I'm a boss and this guy, I just fired this guy on Friday because he kept showing up late. Should I go rehire me? That's not what this is about, okay? So just don't read that into this. This is about the human condition and how God relates to us. And Jesus tells this parable to assault, to confront whatever thoughts we may have which connect our work and God's grace. Um, as I said two weeks ago, we may say that grace is a gift to the undeserving, but we act as if it's compensation for the hardworking. Well, in verse 15 of Matthew 20, in that parable, the landowner says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? He didn't pay the guys who showed up early less. He just paid the guys who showed up late the same amount. So the landowner says, did I tell you that this was going to be your wage for the day? And the guys who showed up at 5 a.m. said, yes. Well, did I pay you that? Yes. Okay, so what's unfair here? You, <laughs> uh, well, what's unfair is that these guys, well, that, that's, not, that's nothing to do with you. <laughs> okay, that's none of your business. My deal with these guys has nothing to do with my deal with you. Okay, I mean, I, there's nothing about what I've done that is unfair. And so he says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? See, the obedience of the all-day workers is great. And the obedience of the last-minute workers is not. And the grace of the owner toward both is the same. It is an outrageous scenario. Today, we would sue him. Okay. It's outrageous, um, which is why I said a little bit ago that if what you hear doesn't cause you to say, wait a second, I mean, that, that's different than anything I've ever heard before regarding how God relates to us. If, if that's what goes on in your head or your heart from time to time, you may actually be hearing the gospel, I remember when that happened to me, it was like a Copernican revolution inside of me. A massive paradigm shift where I went from thinking that while it was God's blood, sweat, and tears that got me in, it was my blood, sweat, and tears that were required to keep me in. That's kind of what I assumed. That the symbol of the Christian faith before you're a Christian is a cross. And then once you become a Christian, the symbol of the Christian faith becomes a ladder. Now it's no longer about God's descent to us in the person of Jesus. Now it's about our ascent to him. 
So it went from Christianity to religion. And I remember the process by which God deconstructed that flawed paradigm in me and replaced it with one that is actually true regarding sin, grace, and God's one-way love toward train wrecks like me. It's unbelievable that there was nothing I could do or fail to do that would separate me from God's love. Nothing. Nothing. Passages like Romans chapter 8 became real to me in a way they never had before. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That nothing on earth or nothing in heaven, nothing in this world or outside of this world, nothing outside of me, nothing inside of me can separate me from God's love because God's love for me is secured not by what I do or don't do, but by what Jesus has done for me. Well, when that happened inside of me, my whole life changed. My relationship started to change. My, my view of life started to change. My, certainly my preaching and my writing and all the communication I was doing changed. But more than that, my life changed. It's almost like I was able to relax for the first time in my life. Like I was at least conscious of the fact that I had been running on a performance treadmill. And even though old habits die hard and I would find myself back on it, I knew it was there and I knew that it would wear me out and I knew that there was something better. I was aware that when Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, all you who are trying to make it on your own and trying to secure love on your own and trying to secure acceptance on your own and trying to secure approval on your own uh, and significance on your own, come to me, those who are absolutely worn out, and I will give you rest. I mean, everything changed for me. Everything. And so my hope and my prayer is that in encountering a story like the 10 lepers, encountering a parable like the laborers in the vineyard, it will sort of shock us out of our conditionality and help us maybe to see the way God relates to us in a brand new, bright and liberating way. Um, I mean, the resentment in the parable that I just referred to, the resentment of the first group of guys who showed up early shows that they want the system to be about the work they do. That's what they want. They're banking on it. They're banking on the fact that they maintain some measure of leverage. If they can meet certain conditions, this guy's obligated to do something for me. But the response of the owner shows that the whole matter isn't about their work. It's about his big-heartedness. Now, if you're not irritated by that story, you are not reading it. Okay? Um, it's irritating. God's grace is irritating because it takes the focus off of us and our hard work and puts it on Jesus and his generosity. Well, in this story, too, with the 10 lepers, we get irritated. I mean, isn't the giving of grace and the absence of gratitude cheap? You know? I mean, Jesus is delivering cheap grace. I mean, isn't it too cheap? A friend of mine named Steve Brown says when he's, he's he, I learned a lot of what I say from him. And even though he's a lot older and wiser than me, a lot of what we say is similar. 
And so he's always being charged by the religionists for uh, distributing cheap grace. Um, And his response to that is, grace isn't cheap, it's free. I can't even afford cheap, okay? It's totally true. (laughs) Um, But, um, I mean, isn't the giving of grace in the absence of gratitude too cheap? Isn't it just, it's too cheap. See, questions like that assume that grace is first and foremost about the recipient and what he or she does with it. That's what that question assumes. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Questions like that, isn't the giving of grace in the absence of gratitude too cheap? I mean, don't, shouldn't we just give people what they deserve rather than giving them grace? I mean, grace is undeserved favor. I mean, isn't grace dangerous? Because if we give it to somebody who doesn't deserve it, and, you know, newsflash, nobody deserves it. That's the very definition of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, if that helps. An acrostic that helped me when I was a kid. Um, But isn't the giving of grace to people dangerous? I mean, won't it sort of stunt growth and maturity and a sense of responsibility by giving people grace. I mean, uh, how many times, I mean, that, I still feel that way, okay? I mean, I'm preaching against it, and I still feel that way. I still struggle with that stuff. It's a bona fide struggle. It's real, but here's the deal. Questions like that assume that grace is first and foremost about the recipient and what he or she does with it, but it's not. Grace magnifies the giver, not the one receiving it. In other words, grace highlights the heart of the one distributing it, distributing it, not the one getting it. So grace glorifies the giver, not the recipient. So the nine who showed no gratitude, this is key, okay? The nine who showed no gratitude were no less healed than the one who did because the whole point of the story is to show that God is an indiscriminate healer whose decision to heal has nothing to do with how we respond to it at all. That is cool, whoever said that. It's very cool. We'd be lost without it. I'll say that again. The nine who showed no gratitude were no less healed than the one who did because the whole point of the story is to show God as an indiscriminate healer whose decision to heal has nothing, and I mean nothing, to do with how we respond to it. See, we tend to turn grace into something utilitarian. I will give grace if it guarantees a certain outcome that will ultimately benefit me. Okay? That's the way we we look at it like it's a tool. It's a bargaining chip. It's a strategy. I need to get something from my wife. Well, I'm not experiencing a lot of success by telling her to give it to me. So what I'll do is just be super sweet and loving and kind Because then I will get from her what I want. And vice versa. 
You see, we, we, we use grace as a tool, a utilitarian tool, to get what we want from somebody. That's typically what we do with grace. We turn it into a bargaining chip. Um, I will give this person grace if it guarantees a certain outcome that will ultimately benefit me. And so when we see Jesus heal in the absence of gratitude, we tend to think grace doesn't work. But that's the point. Giving grace is not a means to an end. It's an end in itself. That's not saying that grace never produces something in the one who receives it. One did come back. And notice who gets it. The one who came back was a Samaritan. As I mentioned, the the hated half-breeds of the world in that day. Which is just beautiful. I love the fact that this passage points that out. Because oftentimes, the ones who get grace are the ones who are the least righteous of the least righteous. The outcast of the outcasts. The leper who is also a Samaritan. A double whammy. He's a double outcast. He's a leper and he's a Samaritan. It's always the most unlikely people who get grace. Always. It's always the the bad people. The people who we know don't deserve it. They've made terrible decisions. They've ruined their life and the lives of other people by the, the stupid, foolish, selfish decisions they've made. They're they're just, they're narcissistic, they're mean, they're only thinking of themselves, they're, they're destructive in their behavior, and um, I mean, the, you know, they've just, they've really done some bad stuff, and they have some really bad habits, and their bad stuff and their bad habits have really hurt some good people. Those are the people we see over and over and over again in the Gospels who flock to Jesus. And it drives the religionists nuts. Nuts. They just assume God is for clean and competent people. These people are clearly unclean. They're incompetent. They're morally and spiritually reprehensible. That's why they thought Jesus was an intruder, a fraud, because no self-respecting man of God would ever embrace such moral filth like the people Jesus embraced, ever. Stacy and I were at dinner last night. We went to Thirsty Turtle for the first time in almost a year. You know, that was my spot for a long, long time, long time. And then we went about a year ago, and our clothes never got rid of the smell, and so we decided not to go back. You're, you do have to throw your clothes away when you go to that place, okay? You do. So if you're going to go to Thirsty Turtle, wear clothes you don't ever want to wear again. But we were there last night and eating the chicken wings and the skirt steak that I get every time was like being reacquainted with old friends. It was a joyous occasion for me. <laughs> um, and we were talking about this message, what I was going to be preaching today, and this passage. And uh, I said, you know, I'm convinced that if Jesus were alive today, he would have nothing to do with anything that is Christian. The conferences, the churches, the books, the 
the whole subculture. Because when, and I've had a deep peek behind the scenes. I lived behind the scenes for most of my life. And I can tell you that the parallel between this Christian subculture and sort of the the structure and message of it is almost identical to the kind of uh, people that could not stand Jesus in Jesus' own day. Um, I mean, we hear from literally hundreds and hundreds of people all around the world who write to us because I've been so open regarding my own story and uncomfortably transparent that they feel, they feel safe telling me all of their stuff. Um, and one of the things, even though their circumstances are different and things about their uh, lives are different, there's one common theme, one common thread that runs through all these stories, that church tends to be the scariest place rather than the safest place for fallen people to fall down and broken people to break down. That we can, it's one thing to confess that you're a sinner. That's noble. But if you actually confess your sin, well, that's a whole nother level, okay? I mean, I have a dear friend who's, Going to be here in a couple weeks, a pastor friend of ours on the west coast of Florida who says, why is it that the church, the last institution in society that seemingly still believes in sin is so shocked when they actually encounter it? It's true. You know, it's, um, it's true. I have a, another friend, a pastor friend who said, you know, people love it when Christian leaders Love it when Christian leaders stand up and say, I'm broken just like you are. I'm fallen just like you are. People love it. Tears in their eyes. Gosh, I can relate to that guy. Man, or that lady. I can relate, man. I can relate. He's one of us. Until you do something that broken people do or fallen people do, then it's out to the curb. Well, all of that resembles much more of what Jesus was up against in these stories. The religion, the religionists. Um, Jesus is always attracting the wrong people. Always. He's not attracting the moral superstars. Okay? He's, he's always attracting the moral train wrecks. Always. People who are well acquainted with their weakness and their failure and their guilt and their shame. Always. These are the people that crawl to him, that come to him, that beg him for help and mercy. The people who think they're strong and clean and capable, they stay away and they criticize from a distance. Um, and so I've said before when we looked at Luke chapter 15 a few weeks ago, uh, the first two verses of Luke 15, verse 1 says, And the sinners and tax collectors were all coming to Jesus. Verse 2, and the scribes and the Pharisees were scandalized, saying to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And I said, may it always be said of the sanctuary that this place welcomes sinners and eats with them. As long as that's true, as long as the religionists hate what's going on, we're doing something right, okay? That's kind of a proof we see that over and over and over again in these stories. 
Um, I mean, over and over again. Um, we, in the Gospels, we see Jesus is constantly giving to the wrong people, prostitutes, tax collectors, nine lepers who didn't even bother to say thank you to Jesus for essentially raising them from the dead. I mean, the whole point of this story is that grace doesn't make demands. It just gives. And from our vantage point, it's always giving to the wrong people. Always. Um, this story proves that grace is unconditional love given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. That's what it is. If you want a short one-sentence definition of grace, that's it. It's the best I got. That grace is unconditional love given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Um, I could go on and on. You know, my sermons have been getting longer, I've noticed. Yeah, I know. You guys have noticed too, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know if it bothers me more than you or you more than me, but, you know, I noticed last week it was like 43 minutes. I was scandalized by that. I was like, I can't expect people to pay attention for 43 minutes. I don't care how animated I am. 43 minutes is a long time. Uh, so I got to wrap it up because um, we're probably nearing that time now. Um, so let me just conclude with this thought that I had um, That's two weeks in a row for you, Ken. <laughs> Next week, you leave your phone with the usher at the door. <laughs> um, I, I want to feel clean. I mean, who, who likes feeling dirty? Who likes dealing with an unclean conscience, for instance? You know? I mean, one of the things that marked... These lepers was a keen awareness of their uncleanness physically. Um, well, physical uncleanness is one thing, but emotional, mental uncleanness, spiritual uncleanness is a whole nother thing. I mean, who likes to deal with rumbling regrets and monstrous memories of things gone south? I mean, who likes to remember the cruel things that we've said to our spouse or our kids or, um, you know, or things we've done in secret, things we've thought in secret. I mean, we don't like that feeling of uncleanness. And we've concluded that the secret to happiness is self-approval. It's really true. We've concluded, consciously or unconsciously, that the secret to happiness is self-approval. And so we inescapably create a romantic view of ourselves that downplays the ugliness of our hearts. Our, our arrogance, our selfishness, our anger problems, our secrecy, our greed, our lust, whatever the case may be. We, we, um, we sort of create this romantic view of ourselves that downplays the ugliness of our heart because the secret to happiness is self-approval. If I'm going to be happy, I have to be approving of myself. So we not only work to hide the worst parts of us from others, we work to hide the worst parts of us from ourselves. Okay? 
And, and no one has to teach us to do this. We do it naturally. We do it unconsciously. Humanity has been covering our nakedness with fig leaves of our own making since the Garden of Eden. We've been doing it since Adam and Eve. So it's not whether you do it. It's why we do it. Um, but here's the good news, okay? And these 10 lepers discovered this. The reach of God's grace meets us in unclean places because unclean places are all that there are. And the reach of God's grace meets us and embraces unclean people because unclean people are all that there are. That's it. There are two categories of people in this world, clean and unclean. There's unclean people who know that they're unclean and there's unclean people who think that they're clean. But there's no one who's not unclean. And once you admit you're unclean, you're free. You're free. When I say this kind of stuff, whether I communicate it in person or online or whatever, uh, people always come back and say, they always clap back with this, well, you're being too hard on yourself. I'm like, dude, you, get, you have no idea. I'm so free. It's, it's wonderful. It's like the weight of the world is lifted off my shoulders by being able to stand in front of people and go, I'm unclean. You want me to tell you how unclean I am? And clear out the room. I don't care. Okay, that's, that's freedom. Because once you have God's approval, who needs self-approval? And who needs the approval of others? I mean, God's approval trumps the approval of anything or anybody else, which generates a tremendous amount of freedom. So once you admit you're unclean, you're free. Comparing and concealing is so exhausting. So exhausting. All of our uncleanness, here's the gospel, okay? All of our uncleanness was given to Jesus and all of his cleanness was given to us. So now you're free to admit your badness because your hope rests in Jesus' goodness. Okay, that's incredible. You become so much more relatable to people when you're that way and so much more compassionate and so much more empathetic and sympathetic. You become much more enjoyable to be around. Honestly. When you can go, me too. You're not the only one. I, you want me to make you feel better? Let me tell you a couple stories. Okay. See, now you're free to acknowledge your imperfections and your weaknesses because your hope rests in Jesus' strength, not yours. His perfection, not your performance. So we are, we're before the throne of God, clean, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus perfectly. So that before God, we are clean, spotless, without blemish. And since that's true about us before God, in the here and now, we can admit our functional uncleanness. And it not affect our relationship to God. And it not affect our relationship to ourselves. Um, so like I said, who needs self-approval when you have God's approval? I mean, it is a beautiful thing. When you know that God loves you, you don't need everybody else to like you. And that's freedom. Let's pray together.